0: I believe in individuality i don't subscribe to rdi's i think we all do have different requirements for nutrients for example where how do i measure that how do i monitor that in my patients and it isn't by doing extensive sophisticated individual nutrient assays it's actually about looking at routine bloods and knowing how they reflect the you know the nutritional story or reflect you know the the biochemistry and you know all those elements welcome to the metagenics institute podcast a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians enjoy this insightful conversation with host nathan
1: rose Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today joining me from Mullumbimby is Rachel Arthur, nutritionist and naturopath. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Nathan. How are you doing? Very good. And yourself. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, so, we're here today to talk about pathology testing. This is something you really focus in on. Uh, I know in functional medicine, we like to often do more functional tests and perhaps maybe gloss over uh, pathology testing, but you've really focused in on pathology testing to to gain a lot of information and clinical gems out of that, so I'm really looking forward to having a conversation around that. So, before we dive in, before we dive into that, perhaps for those who may be unfamiliar with who you are and what you do, can you give us a bit of a uh, background on who you are?
0: Sure. Um, so, I trained as a naturopath down in Victoria back in the 1990s, which um, you know, dare I say, it is a quarter of a century ago, which is rather frightening. <laughs> Um, and after practicing and working for some years I, and uh, popping out a, a set of twins, I then um, returned to study up in the Northern Rivers area at Southern Cross University, where I did my honours thesis looking at methods of zinc assessment um, used by Australian naturopaths. And really, there was kind of, um, I think it was a tipping point, really, or a or, um, a real catalyst because I was under the supervision of um, Dr. Tini Gruner and she and I were uh, very kindred spirits. We were both really interested in how we might use pathology, mainstream pathology and what biochemical insights that would give us about patients. And so we really learnt off each other, bounced off each other and started teaching students at SEM right. um, these sort of things uh, you know, uh, tools really, and and kind of, yeah, look, looking at how they could apply those tools to really get more of an insight about what was going on for their patients. So, yeah, that was kind of the birth of everything else. Really, I never had any training myself in my undergraduate. Lab tests were not something that we could yeah. have remotely looked at back in the training back then, um, but. You know, teeny sort of fueled something that was already a little uh, fire in me to pursue this area, and um, you know, ever since then, I've sort of taken it to the to the max, really, in terms of really trying to maximize our understanding about how these are so crucial in really understanding what's going on in your patient.
1: Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah, you're finding value from sort of focusing on the, the fundamentals and uh, you gave a great talk at the NHAA recently. Um, but also within that, there's obviously nuances around testing. So before we dive into the, the 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 weeds with it, is there an overarching perspective you have like how do you go in, how do you sort of approach this? Like, Or what's a naturopathic perspective of assessing or understanding blood tests?
0: Well, I think, I think that's a great question and I think that's one we all have to answer for ourselves before we dive into anything. You know, we, we, if we're going to look at labs, we really have to say, how does this fit within my practice? How does this fit within my understanding? You know, um, and for me, obviously, I've answered that question where for myself where I'm like, well, naturopathy to me is, is all about biochemical individuality. You know, biological individuality, physiological individuality. And we can glean a lot of that from our patients by taking outstanding case histories, which we do. However, we're also under that umbrella term of holistic practitioners. And I'm like, well, don't we want the whole story? Are we going to get the whole story from a case history, no matter how good it is? Mm. How does you know, uh, does every kind of pathophysiological process, even in early stages, manifest in some sort of health narrative? No, it doesn't. And yet I want to be um, somebody who works preventatively. I want to be somebody who works holistically. So for me, it's like, oh, this is a no brainer. I want all the information. I want to see people for the individuals they are. So, for example, Nathan, in concrete terms, I don't subscribe to RDIs. Now, I'm sure I'm not Robinson Crusoe there. I'm sure a lot of us understand the pitfalls and the limitations of nutrient RDIs. Well, how then do I determine if my patient is adequate in terms of a given micronutrient? Like, am I just guessing? Am I just waiting for signs and symptoms of a deficiency-associated presentation? Signs and symptoms have incredibly poor specificity for a lot of micronutrients. The lag time is enormous. Think about iodine deficiency. How long is it going to take for your patient to present with a goiter, you know, um, and, and did we want to wait that long? And also in terms of specificity, you know, the overlap in those deficiency pictures is enormous. So. I go, well, I believe in individuality. I don't subscribe to RDIs. I think we all do have different requirements for nutrients, for example, where how do I measure that? How do I monitor that in my patients? And it isn't by doing extensive, sophisticated individual nutrient assays. It's actually about looking at routine bloods and knowing how they reflect the you know the nutritional story or reflect you know the the biochemistry and you know all those elements yeah
1: mm. that's really well said so in your talk you um well first before we, we dive into the details one other thing I wanted to cover off is um reference ranges and deci- decision limits can you explain both and also how does science and research come up with these you know um, cutoffs and, and ranges
0: Yeah, it's such a good question because when we look at patients' results, we are forming a comparison. We don't intuitively know what's a good number, what's a bad number. So we are comparing to typically a reference interval or, as you say, a decision limit that's there on the report side by side with your patients' result. And so the first thing that we should be spending a lot of time scrutinising is, hang on a second, where did these come from? How were these derived? Who do they describe or what do they describe in people? And so there's really three main um, methods of determination, which is uh, decision limits, as you mentioned, which is a scientific consensus about what so-called healthy looks like um, in populations. So that is, you know, the classic example is fasting lipids or CRP. We're told that, you know, CRP should be less than five in the general population. Um, the the thing to think about with that is uh, less than five for what? Uh, less than five, you know, to prevent a primary cardiovascular event, yeah. Um, but is just 4.9 okay for somebody you know, day in, day out as a value. No, it's not. So we have to just scrutinise that idea of these health goals a little bit further as well. The major things that we're using as comparators is really reference intervals that are descriptions of patient results. And those descriptions could be Uh, patient results from that private lab that's called Mm in-house determined or they could be using a larger cohort like a national cohort or an international cohort and whether whether it's in-house or what we call externally derived uh, reference intervals they basically just plot people's results and then they take the minimum from what they call the fifth centile and the maximum from what they call the 95th centile. So, really, it's just a descriptive process. They say, Oh, this is where people fall. And inherent in that is the academic, you know, completely artificial notion that only 10% of the population at any given time is going to be unwell. And you just go, Oh, that's um, who came up with that? <laughs> like, that's a curious idea. Um, so in any given, you know, value, we just say, oh, well, you know, uh, we expect 10% of the population to fall outside of the reference interval with this particular result. Um, are more than 10% of the population unwell? Yeah. So, so it's really interesting to think about how they really are just descriptive. And then what are they describing? You know, they're describing. Um, our current population. And so, as you know, that really is often reflective of what I call the new abnormal. So, with certain things that uh, parameters and, uh, you know, by biomarkers that move or are influenced by adiposity, they're constantly moving those goalposts from one decade to the next to reflect the new abnormal because the population and, and the private labs uh, sample uh, patients, they just keep getting fatter. Um, and so we keep moving the goalposts. Mm. So that's really interesting to think, well, it's all very well to get this lovely printed to report and have this uh, convenience of, of this reference interval beside my patient's result to form some sort of a comparison but who are we comparing ourselves to? Is that giving us the insight that we need? Does that in any way describe healthy?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of markers that you uh, discussed in your presentation, and I wouldn't mind going through here. Where perhaps the, as you said, that that's the new abnormal. Have you created sort of a, a better a better normal for your patients? Um, so the first two, I'll start with is, uh, liver enzymes. You obviously have a huge interest in, in liver function, liver enzymes. Yeah. Um, GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase, if I can remember off the top of my head. Um, something I've been following o- off and on over the years because it's been linked to environmental toxicity um, outside of like, you know, uh, excess liver, uh, excess alcohol consumption and so forth. Um, and you provided evidence how it's, that, that the median has really shifted over the years from the 1970s. So, yeah, can you add to that and like, do you have a bit more of a, 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 a more specific threshold for where you'd like to see your patients?
0: Look, I do, and it's not um, so much that I've created a threshold. What I find so interesting is when I talk about the limitations of reference intervals and everyone sort of goes, oh, well, that's you know pretty futile comparing ourselves to the new abnormal, let's give up. Um, I think sometimes we incorrectly imagine that the research hasn't been done to describe healthy with these parameters. And it has. That's mm, the shocking yeah. thing. And it's been done really well on, on large international samples and um, multiple times. So there is, you know, a consensus emerging. Um, so with GGT, it's one of those um, markers that does reflect the new abnormal in terms of the goalposts keep shifting up and up and up, decade after decade, uh, because, it is, as you mentioned, uh, reflective to some extent of our environmental exposures. It certainly is very sensitive to adiposity um, and it's sensitive to oxidative stress. So it doesn't really matter if that was through an environmental exposure mm-hmm. or just through, you know, uh, chronic uh, disease processes as well. Um, and so we know that. You know, in Australia, for example, this is an in-house determined reference range, and we're told by private labs here in Australia that a, you know, a, a man's GGT can be anywhere up to 70, and that's acceptable, and a, a woman's can be anywhere up to 50. Um, now, the the independent research looking at defining healthy would um you know, beg to differ, <laughs> and um, they're like, well, okay, you're describing um, probably really excess alcohol intake in Australia and uh, growing rates of adiposity, um, but we know that a healthy GGT, um, when we look at, um, you know, all sorts of liver assessments and oxidative stress assessments in the same patient, um, should be under nineteen for an adult female and under twenty eight for an adult male. Right. Wow! And then this this is you know in 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 twenty twenty. Um, but in the nineteen seventies, the median value for uh, women was nine, and the wow. median value for men was sixteen. So it, it just it's such a great case in point about I think knowing that. These are really exciting opportunities for insight into our patients and these have all been done. You're you're not asking a patient to fork out, go get some difficult tests. You know, they've Mm -hmm. already had all these done. You're just collating the data and mining it for the gold that's in there but you're not going to be fooled into using the reference ranges because they're too blunt a tool for effective comparison so when you know you say have I got better reference ranges it's not me that came up with them we just went through all the research that we could get our little mitts on mm-hmm. and started to put that in the one place and say oh okay GGT should be under 19 in a female to be optimal all right we're just going to reflect the, the research um, and we've gone through and done that for all the routine labs wow yeah
1: and how do you? How do you? Well, what conversation do you have with the patients, explaining, "Hey, listen, it's in the the normal range, but from the research we've done, there's an optimal range, and you're outside of that." How do they respond to that? And then, secondly, how do you go about working on that to do you, do you investigate, like alcohol consumption, or is it, uh, as you said, uh, fat mass related and so forth? So, yeah, yeah how do you cover the conversation? How do you do the detective work?
0: Well, I think the detective work all has to happen before you have any conversation with either the patient or um, any other health professionals sharing care of that patient. You need to have made sure that you are not being tricked by confounders, that there isn't a clear explanation like excess paracetamol use is a great way to boost Mm. up your GGT. I'm being ironic and sarcastic that's not a good way um it really does flag some um burden there from that pharmaceutical um so you need to have gone through and and again that's very much what i teach people about is know everything uh, or have a tool that you can go back and refer to that describes everything that can move a marker up and down so that you can go through that list and say it's not that it's not that it's not that okay, um, I'm left thinking that this may in fact be oxidative stress. You, you know, it's not fat mass, mm. it's not paracetamol, it's not alcohol, you know, um, and then um, look for other evidence, usually not not um, exclusively within the pathology, of course, going back to your case as well and your case taking. But, you know, one of my big messages is, you know, pathology you know, is not about an isolated uh, value. It's it's all about patterns. So if I see a high GGT, and I've gone through my hit list and gone, it's not any of these other explanations. I really am feeling like it uh, it could be an oxidative stress marker in this patient. Then I look to my other oxidative stress markers, which are in the routine labs, you know, something like uric acid is a really interesting mm. one. Um, so yeah, so pathology happens in, in patterns and you would expect to see some congruence, you know, you expect to see some, some, uh, you know, other chapters to the same story there in the patient's blood work. Having that conversation with patients is interesting. I don't go through every result and say, "Let me tell you how your doctor's wrong," or "Let me tell you how the you know pathology company is wrong." I don't see any mm. value in that. Mm. Um, what and 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 often the minutia of those parameters are not constructive from a patient's perspective either. I might just simply give them a bit of a zoomed out perspective where I say, "Look." You know, absolutely, these values are within the reference range, so I can see why you know your GP regards these as normal and healthy. However, we look through a slightly different lens, um, and what I'm seeing is a pattern that may flag, you know, oxidative stress. Let's say i um, staying on on uh, topic here, um, and then I would have to, and I do. Um, you know, share my insights with the other health professionals caring for that patient. And I would use language that is respectful, that is rational, and that shows my medical literacy basically. So I'm not saying something's high if it's in range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm saying I appreciate this is within range. However, it is high normal, it is low normal, it is... Um, you know, uh, disproportionate for BMI, diet, whatever I'm picking up, I'm just articulating using a common language that that we actually do share with GPs, uh, for example, Um, and uh, and being, you know, careful about how I do that.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I want to get to that shortly. I think some of the the language, very deliberate and um, accurate is really important. Uh, The other one was ALT, is that a similar story, any, anything noteworthy it's, there?
0: It's really similar. So we talk about ALT and um, GGT as being kind of the um, German shepherds of the liver enzymes um, <laughs> in terms of they are highly, highly sensitive. Um, they tend to uh, be elevated, uh, you know, earliest if there is, in fact, any liver damage. Um, And as I said, that liver damage might uh, be because of alcohol, because of paracetamol use. Um, It might not uh, fall under a disease name yet. Um, Or um, those markers could be going off for uh, reasons and pathophysiological processes elsewhere in the body because they're not restricted in any way to uh, just being expressed in the liver. Mm. So the ALT is super sensitive um, in terms of uh, adiposity, just like GGT. It, it is one of the key ones that uh, tends to rise. And this is a reflection that the liver really doesn't like uh, increasing that um, and that there will be increased hepatocellular uh, damage in the context again well before anybody else is going to call it and say oh this is you know non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um but uh alt of course because it is so sensitive to adiposity is very much affected by these shifting goalposts. we keep moving that reference range up or what what we describe as normal because the population keeps getting fatter um, but how it's different from GGT is that in GGT I haven't been able to find really concrete evidence, and I really did think I was going to, mm. Nathan, that there was a value that you didn't want to be below, if that makes sense. Like I yeah, right. couldn't really find a minimum cut-off point for GGT, and I tell you, I really, really looked. Um but with ALT, the difference is there is a clear minimum. You know, mm. you don't want to have values um, below 10. You don't. You probably don't want to have values below 12, really, or 13. Um, and this work has, has been particularly, um, uh, you know, highlighted by uh, a group of researchers called NDREPA, being the prime uh, primary researcher, and, and their colleagues where they found that um, ALT levels across very large uh, samples of the general population demonstrate a U-shaped curve. The lower it is, uh, you know, at those kind of really um, bottom uh, values was associated with higher mortality and higher morbidity, and so were the higher values Interesting. As well. Um, so I'm looking for ALT, generally speaking, Um, you know, that's above 13, and that's probably, you know, less than 19 in a female, in an adult female, um, and less than 29 in an adult male. And the maximums have been um, determined by some quite exquisite research that actually um, ultrasounds their liver at the same time. And so it's picking up these really um, fairly early... um, you know cross correlations with you know look uh, there is very early infiltration of that liver with um, fat um, at lower ALT than we ever realised before.
1: Interesting. So on the lower end, does does the research have a hypothesis or explanation on why there is this U curve? Is it malnutrition or, yeah. or what? What what explains the yeah, lower levels exactly. of being problematic?
0: I mean. You know, you're, you're very close to the mark there. A lot of the, um, you know, kind of suboptimal um, results for certainly some of the liver enzymes, ALT being a good example, AST and ALP, when we see people tracking very uh, low or low normal with these consistently, one of the first considerations is actually malnourishment. Um, and it's not global malnourishment. It's very specific micronutrient deficiencies mm. that mean that you cannot express that enzyme optimally and you can't run that enzyme optimally. Right. Um, so in the case of the transaminases, the ALT and AST, the big one there is really B6. If you don't have enough B6, that can... Um, produce these low or low normal uh, values that you can see in patients. Again, I never use that on its own to uh, diagnose uh, or determine B6 status. I'm looking for other pieces of evidence to kind of support or refute that. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and the other one is really interesting, and and Drepper and colleagues talk about this a lot, is also ALT, because remember that the whole notion that these enzymes are liver enzymes is really um, kind of it's kind of gross mislabeling, really. You know, the, mm. all of them are distributed quite widely across the body, um, and some of them, you know, in other organs, just to the same extent that they are expressed in the liver. One of the big, um, you know, other tissues where ALT is very concentrated is within is within um, you know, our muscles along with AST as well. And so, and Draper and colleagues make the point that when we see low values uh, for ALT in some patients, uh, rather than it being a B6 deficiency, it may well be sarcopenia. And they talk about this particularly in older cohorts as well and how the more sarcopenic an elderly patient is, the higher their mortality, as we know. Um, So, yeah, it's an interesting sort of tie in there. Fascinating. Yeah.
1: Um, This is probably well-known by our audience, but maybe just worth reiterating. CIP, you're probably a bit more pedantic is probably the wrong word, but have a, a narrow range, like less forgiving, of yeah. um, elevated CAP. What mm, What's your sort I ha, of? I have
0: been told at times I'm less forgiving, Nathan, and I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'll try not to take that personally. <laughs> um, look, the as as we mentioned before, you know, the decision limit in patients who um, or individuals uh, who haven't had a cardiovascular event. Um, is less than five. We're told anything less than five is fine. Um, but, again, the research has been done um, that to, to clearly demonstrate that in that same group, really uh, above one requires an explanation. You know, it's not less than five mm-hmm. is bandy. It's actually, well, if you had, you know, a, a value between one and five, and you um, exhibited that, you know, uh, over multiple, you know, uh, time points and data collections, then really you have some chronic low-level inflammation at play, and um, that's not healthy, you know. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's very clear data that says no. You know, unless you're acutely well and uh, unwell at the time of the blood draw, your CRP as an adult, not as a child, as an adult should really be under one.
1: Okay. And I suppose it comes down to your other tests and patterns and recognition to determine what could be responsible, but um, what are some of the, the common things you find that could explain that sub- optimal CRP?
0: Yeah, so look, CRP is such a good one, but it's so fallible like all inflammatory markers, I have to say. I I think, you know, we get a little bit um, relaxed where we go, well, we checked CRP and it it looked okay, so Mm. so there's not inflammation. I'm like, oh, not quite, because CRP reflects a a fairly narrow niche uh, inflammatory story in some ways. Um, You know, it it has to have, um, you know, quite, um, you know, interleukin-6 um, elevated at quite a level to trigger, you know, a wow. rise in CRP. Um, so, you know, what am I looking at um, as explanations for somebody who sits under five but doesn't sit under one and you're going, well, you don't have an inflammatory diagnosis. Um, it's things like adiposity, of course, um, smoking, um, exogenous estrogen use uh, will um, drive up the CRP a All couple right. of units in most women. Um Things like, uh, you know, dysbiosis, really marked stress can do it, and insomnia mm. can certainly elevate the yeah, PRP. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, chronic mild metabolic acidosis. You know, there's quite a long list. And then you think about the individual who has more than one of those. You know, which which is going to be a lot of our patients. So they're just carrying a little bit of excess fat and they're in, on exogenous oestrogen, the research shows that, you know, the CRP will reflect those two individual drivers kind of exponentially. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. All right. Um, so in contrast, um, are there any analytes or tests that you feel conventional, you know, ranges are, are pretty good And in, in um, functional natural medicine? Sometimes we do get you know, fixated or believe that there's this optimal range. I'm thinking, like, i probably done a bit of a, a 180 on thyroid markers over the years where TSH, you know, in that sort of two or three is actually fine because if you lowered it, lower it down to the below two, they don't seem to have any benefit. Um, so are there any any ones you just want to call out, like, hey, the range is okay and falling within that's all right? Or
0: Look, I think there are. Uh, you know, I think they are. I think, again, it comes back to being able to, answer really clearly what how that range was defined who it is trying to encompass so TSH is such a good example Nathan because I agree a lot of us you know going back a decade might have been saying you know 1.5 or bust you know with TSH Mm. it's got to be 1.5 we had this whole miss conception about magic numbers. You know, there's no such thing as magic numbers. It's all contextual and it's all about patterns. So you have to remember that the TSH uh, reference range is one of those ones that is what we call uh, population distribution. That's how it's been determined. And so the range that we're often given is 0.4 to 4. Um, And you have to think about how Who that's trying to encompass? It's trying to encompass what is okay, uh, what doesn't flag a thyroid condition in anyone from 18 to 80 years old. Let's face it, I'm being a bit ageist. It's really 18 to 100 if you want to live that long. (laughs) Um, It is trying to encompass individuals at any BMI It's trying to encompass what would be deemed reasonable and not indicative of a thyroid disorder for any individual, no matter what their other illness, right? Now, TSH is so connected and reflective of so many other circuits and systems within the body and metabolic processes So we actually expect a very different TSH if you have a BMI of 18 compared to you if you have a BMI of 30. And it's not that the TSH is driving adiposity. Mm. It's actually responding to the adiposity. So if I saw someone come in with a BMI um, of 30 or above and their TSH was 1.5, I'd have a fit, Nathan, because their uh, HPT access has actually failed to respond appropriately to the adiposity and the inflammation. It should be much higher because of their BMI. And likewise, I I worry about people that don't recognise that the HPT access really changes as we age and it's supposed to. Again, if I see someone in their 70s and 80s that have a TSH of 1.5, I, I'm panicking just quietly because that is not, according to the research, a good in a good marker for them. That's actually going to uh, generally be correlated with greater morbidity and mortality for those individuals. We want to see the TSH higher we're in that um, senescence. So mm. I think it is probably one of the most misunderstood ranges and I think that, um, yeah, so I, I'm kind of echoing your sentiment. I don't want to be out there talking about magic numbers and having this one-size-fits-all mis, misperception. Um, and I see why, you know, the range is 0. 0.4 to 4 because mm. they're trying to encompass all of those individuals in the population.
1: Mm. yeah fascinating all right um there's a couple of blood test and analytes that I noticed from your talk and um I, I as I understand will be much more explained in detail in your course that's coming up um that I've sort of put under the banner of hiding in plain sight there's I suppose they're, they're tests which are stereotypically or well, have their sort of stereotypic function but outside of that you can also glean some information around people's physiology um you mentioned earlier uric acid jumped out at me it's something that you you show an interest in and something i probably admittedly would sort of skip over reading a blood test but yeah what what can you tell from uric acid
0: oh uh, (laughs) so much uric (laughs) acid is so interesting right because you're so on the money We've relegated it to being a renal marker. We go, it's a renal marker. You know, you've either got gout or you haven't. Mm. You know, or you've got renal impairment or you haven't. And um, I'm like, God, it's just such a good example of how underutilised these results for our patients are. Um, Uric acid, um, as you would know, is this kind of incredibly um, – dynamic, uh, almost ubiquitously distributed molecule that is sitting kind of between two teams in the body. It is actually one of our um, most prevalent, if you like, or most concentrated and and profuse antioxidants in the blood. Um, it, It makes a really big contribution to our antioxidant defense system. Um, But it can actually swap teams um, and so that's its behaviour outside the cell, let's say, um, and in the blood. Um, But inside the cell it's uh, very likely to be an oxidant Um, and this is the case that it leans more towards being problematic and contributing to oxidative stress when we see somebody sit high normal over a long period of time or high. Um, So uric acid is fascinating, and uh, both in terms of that sort of global kind of, you know, capture of one aspect of this antioxidant-oxidant balance in an individual, but I know one of your areas of interest and absolutely mine is how peripheral uric acid correlates perfectly with central nervous system uric acid Mm. and that's not something we can often say because the central nervous system is such a unique environment but we know that that's true so what the uric acid that we're measuring in your vein um you know measuring in your you know um uh, uh you know peripheral circulation is telling us exactly, you know, if we gave you a lumbar puncture, which we don't want to do, uh, and measured your uric acid there, this is what we'd find. And uric acid is a really important molecule in brain health. You know, too low is problematic, too high is problematic. And I think one of, you know, this is a really big emerging area as a biomarker in mental health, um, both in terms of uh, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, and uh, we're going to we're going to hear more and more about this. Mm. It's so interesting to think about what it tells us about somebody's brain biology, really.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, yeah, that the brain nervous system is sort of a, a black box, isn't it? It's hard to really get any information from. So to be able to get to access it with this simple test it really shows, yeah, it's, it shows some promise. So fascinating. Um, Another, back to liver enzymes, alkaline phosphatase, and maybe I've just sort of um, said a a stereotype. Is it a liver liver enzyme? And um, you're hinting that it can tell just as much about bone health.
0: Absolutely. So what we know is the ALP that we measure in the blood is not really one enzyme. It's a collection and cluster of several enzymes that belong to the same family. Um, And in a typical uh, you know, um, capture in any patient, 45% of what you're actually measuring and calling ALP came from the liver, 45% came from their bones, right. and about 10% came from their intestines, hmm. um, which is interesting of um, because it's an intestinal expression and version of this enzyme. So, um, when we yeah so we can you know we we do it a disservice when we go oh you know ALP uh, is tells you about hepatobiliary health you know it'll tell us about bile stones and you know whatever it, it it is so so much more than that and and you know while we can say you know 45% of what we're measuring in in the blood is is bone it you can go one step further. When you have a patient, and you can take away the guessing, I guess what I'm saying, you, when you have a patient who records an out-of-range ALP value, um, obviously particularly um, above the range, um, the labs can then go on and do what's called an is, isoenzyme assay where they separate out the different mm. subtypes, if you like, And they'll come back and tell you, oh, the elevation is really because of bone. And we see results for this quite a lot because obviously I um, am very enthusiastic about uh, being clear about what labs are telling us. And when we see high normal values for ALP, you know, unfortunately, the reflex is to say, oh, it must be something going on in your liver, even in the absence of any other markers to, to support that, like The rest of the liver enzymes are fine. Um, And I always say, well, is it? You know, and I'll give, you know, those those, um, GPs that I'm sharing care with a very gentle nudge and I'll say, oh, do you think there might be value in in actually running the isoenzyme test so we can be clear which form of ALP, which origin is actually the source of this? I almost always uh, am looking at those results going, yep, it's their bone. And um, I had a feeling it was their bone uh, because of the rest of their pathology Mm, story that mm. I can
1: see. So cool. And another one, finally, it piqued my interest several years ago when I heard Dr. Dale Bredesen describing this as a marker for inflammation in his Alzheimer's patients, this albumin-to-globulin ratio. I haven't looked into it much, but... Well, first of all, can you explain these two proteins and how does that relate to inflammation?
0: Oh, such a big topic, <laughs> <laughs> such a good question. Um, I think I was probably listening to the same talk when <laughs> I heard, it was Dave Je- Jenkins, is that what you said? Oh,
1: uh, D- uh, Dale Bredesen. Dale her, Bredesen. Yeah. I
0: think I heard his protege, Dave Jenkins, talking exactly. about the yeah. Bredesen Protocol Um, So I I was probably um, getting the same message just through a different messenger. Um, And I was captivated as well because I was like, you know, um, as we described before, CRP, very narrow in the sort of inflammation it reflects and for how long it will reflect that for as well, even though the inflammation may be ongoing. Um, and so I'd always been slightly disillusioned and disappointed with the mm. RP, and I always look around the lab's white cell counts and differentials and things like that to get more information, look at ESR as well, which has a different kind of um, sweet spot that it reflects for inflammation. But when I heard Dave Jenkins talking about the albumin globulin ratio, I was all ears because I was like, yep, we need something else, uh, and this sounds really good. Um, So I do refer to it in my course and in my teachings as being the master mediator because it's more, it it reflects more, if you like, different, a, a broader range of different inflammatory processes than either CRP or ESR. So they are both plasma proteins, um, albumin being the dominant one um, and uh, globulin coming in a very close second. Mm. Um, globulin, of course, is an, a collective group. It's a group of, of uh, proteins that, that go by this name and it includes things like CRP, uh, which, of course, is an immunoglobulin and all your other immunoglobulins. It also includes things like um, cereloplasmin. Uh, You know, so it's an interesting collection of molecules, these globulins that on the whole, we would say, are in some way involved in immune responses, you know, either because they're signaling interleukin 6s up or they're signaling an antibody rise or, or whatever, and albumin, you know, being the dominant plasma protein, we, we think of it as being, you know, important for pressure and, um, you know, uh, you know, concentration dynamics and things like that within the blood. Um, but it is an immune molecule. Um, it is a really important immune molecule. So in in the most succinct way possible, because it's such a big topic, if somebody is what I call immune-activated. So this is a more general way of describing Mm -hmm. rather than just saying, oh, they're inflamed, because inflammation, as I said, can be many different things. Um, If somebody is immune-activated, so their immune system has been tapped on the shoulder to respond in some way, shape or form, the typical pattern in terms of these two plasma proteins is that the globulins will rise because somewhere in those collection of molecules that make up the globulins, somebody's busy, whether that's CRP, immunoglobulin, uh, MA, whether seroplasma uh, is rising, whatever it is, and and many of them, of course, all for the one, you know, um, intention or one um, provocation. So the globulins as a general rule will rise and albumin will drop, right, and albumin drops in the blood for in the plasma for a number of reasons. One is because it is an immune molecule and it starts to shift outside of the bloodstream into tissue to do its anti-inflammatory work. Ah, interesting. And the second reason that albumin drops is because if the immune system is really provoked and there is an immune response at play, albumin is um, – oxidized so and and in our analytical method we can't detect oxidized albumin so we're going to say oh that albumin value that was 40 is now suddenly 35 has it really dropped by five units probably not Not all of those five units are because of migration out into tissue. Some of that will be that it's still there in the blood but it's been damaged and we can no longer detect that. So what happens with an albumin-to-globulin ratio is that we expect that the albumin-to-globulin ratio will drop when there is immune activation. Albumin in a healthy individual should always be the dominant one it should always really um, you know we're looking for albumin to globulin ratios really over 1.5 in most people in adults um and and because of these constellation of uh responses to immune activation globulins rising albumin dropping we start to see the relationship between them change and the agr will drop down so you'll see it drop uh, classically um, under 1.2 is when the research would say, oh, okay, they're inflamed. Um, but, of course, when as, uh, as uh, you know, integrative medical professionals who are all about prevention and all about earliest warning signs, we'd watch someone if they're dropping at all and we'd say, mm. well, what's that? What are you doing? You know, you're normal because I've been watching you and collating your data and I know you're normal um is for the agr is you know 1.7 why are you dropping and we would endeavor to answer that question
1: yeah really fascinating and sorry uh just simply uh, the blood test does it give you the the ratio or you have to manually no calculate you have
0: it? to manually calculate it yeah um and, so. and that's really easy to do i think a lot of um The teaching that I'm doing with um, people who are doing the master course is that um, showing them that not only are the routine labs more than you need most of the time in terms of diagnostic insights about patients, but particularly if you apply the ratios. So it's not just the to globulin ratio. It's the AST to ALT ratio. It's all of these little ratios which are established you know, phenomenon in medical research, mm. but we just haven't been taught how to use them and how to interpret them under an integrative kind of, you know, uh, lens or filter.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, the last area I want to talk about, I want to use perhaps that ratio as a segue, you mentioned that the patient often has sort of has like a, a set point, some, some parameters, not all, obviously some fluctuate, um, but there are many parameters that there's sort of like this, the patient has its own sort of set point, and serial measurements show really a lot of consistency. But then there can be a deviation; it's still within the normal range, but um, that can be something of significance. Is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about intra individual variation.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, I know I flicked you that brilliant paper by Watson yeah. Kelly called the normal range, it is not normal, and it is not a range, which kind of, you know, um, sets the agenda pretty clearly at the beginning of their um, discussion. They talk about this so beautifully. They say, look, reference ranges um, or reference intervals are wide, just like we were just describing with TSH, because it has to encompass every age, every BMI, every, you know, all of these things. And it has to, therefore, what what that is really um, describing is it has to account for inter-individual variability. So your hemoglobin, Nathan, and my hemoglobin could be very different because of sex and age and and what have you. But intra-individual variability, you know, your value today compared with your value last week compared with your value last year actually doesn't move very much. For a lot of parameters but this is of course assuming that they have been collected under what i call best collection conditions best collection conditions are really simple things like um, you know avoiding exercise for 48 hours prior to the blood draw you know being hydrated at the time of the blood draw you know all these kind of things even though they sound so simple they will run a mark with messing with the results that you see in a lot of parameters for patients. So in the instance that best collection conditions have been reasonably adhered to, you know, we use we have a template that we share with all our um, master course participants. That's quite dynamic and interactive. It's got lots of little tricks and lovely bristles mm-hmm. that my clever uh, engineering son uh, built in there because I have no <laughs> knowledge in this area. <laughs> Um, and it um, does things for you like it gets you to uh, record the collection conditions so you know uh, what was going on and what potential confounders were, were at any time point, and it shows up which parameters are likely to be tricked if you haven't met best collection conditions. But it also encourages you to collate people's data. So it's saying, well, Nathan, you know, you've probably had blood tests since the age of what, you know, 15, maybe, maybe 18. Let's bring all those in because they were probably all done by commercial, different commercial labs mm. over, you know, however many decades. Let's bring them all in and let's put them side by side so that we can find your normal. And then we can watch it and then we can see that there are deviations of in your labs that still are within the reference range so no GP looking at an isolated value is going to pick that up no naturopath looking at an isolated set of data is going to pick that up but I'm going to pick that up and my master course participants and trainees will pick that up and alumni because they'll go oh no Nathan your hemoglobin is consistently in the 140s so I need to know why suddenly it's in the 130s. You know, you've never been in the 130s over 20 years of, you know, um, having blood tests occasionally done. Um, So, you know, is 130, um, you know, within the reference range for men for hemoglobin? Yes, it is. But it's not your normal. Um, And White and Kelly say, bingo, here's something at play. This is what you watch for. The intra-individual shift is the most meaningful a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Um, and I do appreciate if 15 plus 20 years makes me only 35.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, I don't actually know how old I've got to be
1: careful with this. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, which of the other, it's it's amazing. It's obviously a fair bit of work. Um there's a lot of scrutiny goes involved. Again, are there some that you're more watchful of than others, like, um, you know, glucose, I don't know, might fluctuate, but iron, obviously, is it a harbinger of, you know, some red flags that could occur if there's dips and elevations?
0: Look, I think so many are. And I, I think that, you know, yes, okay, uh, one of the ones that um, I bring to a lot of people's attention is the hemoglobin and the hematocrit, because erythropoiesis is actually quite sensitive it's quite an an insightful. It's it's a real opportunity to look inside about a whole quite broad milieu of what's going on in that patient in terms of nutrient provision, um, you know, um, sex hormone levels, um, thyroid competency. There's all sorts of little insights that erythropoiesis um is reflecting and so when you find someone's normal and you see it suddenly shift you're like oh hello um bone marrow detects a change Mm. you know um let me go through my hit list and work out what change in fact that is whether it's your testosterone or your t3 or you know your renal function or your b12 levels or whatever it is um, but I, I wouldn't limit it to, you know, the FBE. I think so many of these markers, once you know them well and once you understand the, the, the poignancy of, of intra-individual shift, you'll know that, oh, gosh, you know, just a sudden, sh- you know, intra-individual shift in, in many of them, you know, c- could be a real alarm bell. Mm, you mm. know, even when they're still within reference range, it's a very early alarm bell that a process is at play um, that that's making its presence felt.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I suppose it's a bit of a, a skill and a, a, a habit. The practice, the more you do it, the quicker you get it, the, the better you get at identifying this. Yeah, And
0: you know, I think that initially the the You you know, it just can be really seem so voluminous, the information. But again, when you're using our template and you get in good habits, the story starts to show itself quite readily. Oh, Mm. okay. Yeah. Okay. That's the pattern. You know, oh, okay. I can see the individual shift. It's made it really, really clear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I could talk all day about this, and I can understand why your course goes for was it twenty four hours. So, um, yeah, let's let's wrap it up and tell tell us everybody the listeners about the course and what you have on offer.
0: Okay, so we ran um, this course called the Master Course in Comprehensive Diagnostics last year over six months, and we had an incredible number of participants overwhelmingly naturopaths and nutritionists but a really impressive number of doctors as well which was absolutely thrilling to have them on board Um, and over six months we covered the routine labs so the routine labs being electrolytes, renal markers, liver enzymes, Lipids and glucose markers, immunology, which includes things like albumin to globulin ratio that we mentioned, um, and uh, hematology, which is all about the erythropoietic patterns that I said are so, so interesting. Um, so we delivered that over six months and it got I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna blow our own trumpet here, Nathan. And you've seen some of the exciting graphics and animations that go yeah, with our presentation. Very impressive. I'm very lucky to have an amazing team. And, you know, it, it got rave reviews. People said this is just it's a game changer. My whole practice has changed. Um, you know, and and the people who come to see me. Have grown, and my relationships with GPs have suddenly just taken this enormous step forward, because I've established and cemented my credibility in their in their eyes. Because I, I'm I'm literate, I'm lab literate, I know how to use these, and I know how to talk to them about what I'm seeing. Um, So not everybody, um, you know, got the opportunity to do the six months with us, and uh, let's face it, not all of us have six months. There's a lot of people out there who missed out and who want the knowledge, um, if not yesterday, then right now. So we've compressed the course. It's still all the original content, um, but it's delivered across six weeks. So it's for the people who love the idea of accelerated learning Um, It is, so this is a watch party that is facilitated by me. I'm there live during the replaying of the videos and Ah. then I answer your questions live. Oh, great. Um, And so it starts in July and it runs, you know, we're doing one session every week. They are long sessions. They're about three to four hours. Um, And uh, we share our dinner together. That's what I keep telling people, we'll do dinner together. Yep. Um, and um, then I answer you your questions live as well. So that's the watch party. But people can do the same course in their own sweet time. We have it as a package as well, oh,
1: okay. where people yep. can
0: do it, you know, over six months if they yep, want yep. to. Yeah.
1: And uh, bad pun, but when's the decision limit to purchase the uh, watch party? When does Um, that expire?
0: So the cutoff time, we have an instalment plan and if you want to be in on the instalment payment plan, then the cutoff, the decision limit, I like it, is (laughs) um, I think uh, 17th of June. So you have to be in by the 17th of June to pay in instalments if you're happy to pay full price, then we are taking payments right up until the day. Basically, no, I shouldn't say that, my team will kill me. <laughs> up until let's say the week before uh, the watch party kicks off. So really the end of June, uh, you know, first couple of days of July.
1: Excellent. Um, and where else can we find your social media website
0: so uh, you know for anybody that hasn't checked out uh our website which is rachelarthur.com.au it is a gold mine of uh free stuff and information and endless um passionate pathology talk um and we do have a, a page just dedicated on there to the master course where you can find out E- more information about what's in it and how it's run and all your options for how to engage with that um and of course you can follow me uh rachel arthur nutrition um on um facebook and instagram as well we're on there as also
1: sounds really exciting huh i wish i had done this course 10 15 years ago <laughs> would have yeah. been a lot different yeah um Thanks so much. Uh, I'd love to pick your brains more again in the future on another topic. It's been, yeah, the hours gone so fast and I've really, yeah, found it extremely valuable and I'm, yeah, looking forward to um, seeing people graduate and use your skills.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Nathan. Maybe I'll see you there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For useful links and resources, make sure you
0: check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.